Welcome to episode 52 of Paper Talk, a monthly series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing innovative, exciting, and beautiful things with paper. You can sign up for that at helenhebertstudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about my online classes, workshops, how-to books, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, and my new papermaking masterclass, which take place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at helenhebertstudio.com. Today, I'm talking with Michael LaFosse, who runs Origamido Studio outside of Boston with Richard Alexander. This is a really unique studio, because not only do they create, fold, and teach unique origami techniques, but they also produce handmade papers designed specifically for folding and origami. Michael and I talk about how he discovered origami as a child, first learning to fold a paper airplane with his uncle, and then by chance seeing it one episode of a black-and-white TV show about origami, where the host told kids to check out the origami books in their local library. So that's what Michael did. We talk about the dozens of books Michael has written featuring his unique origami designs, where his work is exhibited, and how some of his folded paper designs have been made into sculpture, that I was lucky enough to see last summer at the Origami Garden in New Mexico. We also chat about how he teaches beginner to master level origami at his studio, as well as in schools, where he often uses origami to teach math and geometry. I would say uh, easily a fifth of the work that I do in a year is the in-school origami math enrichment programs. And we travel all over the place mostly in the greater Boston area, but all over the country to do this. And the kids love it. They say, oh, we're not doing math today. But then we get them folding, and then we're really putting them through some math focused on wherever they are in their curriculum at the year. And the teachers love it, the students love it, um, and I enjoy it. I love to get out there and teach. Enjoy our conversation. Michael LaFosse, welcome to Paper Talk. Thank you, Helen. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's so great to talk to you, and I haven't seen you in years. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember long ago recommending mm-hmm. you to be the keynote speaker for the Friends of Dart Hunter because you have this unique origami aspect that you make your own handmade paper. So it was fun to meet you. I think that was uh, 1999, the year my son was born. Oh, that's right. And thank you for recommending me. I had a wonderful time. And um, we actually ended up having some origami um, paper making people grow from there. Uh, At least two paper makers uh, have gone on to design and make papers special for origami artists since then. 
Oh, yeah. I want to talk about that more, but let's start at, um, at the beginning of your life with paper. Do you have mm -hmm. a first memory of paper and folding? Yes. Um, paper airplanes. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> I was maybe four years old and my uncle Norman, my, my father's youngest brother, uh, folded a, a paper airplane and um, gave it to me as a gift. I lost it. I kept bothering him to make more. Uh, sat down and said, I'll show you how it's done. And that was my first memory of paper folding. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. And so did you start folding paper airplanes and other I things? I did. And I started inventing my own. I think almost everyone who enjoys folding paper airplanes, um, they like the experimental part because even if you're using someone else's design, it's after you've folded the paper airplane, how does it actually fly well right. or not? What do you do? Right. Fix it. And then you go back to the drawing board. It's like tabletop engineering. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that naturally leads to creativity and experiment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so uh, what year was this? What year were you born? I was born in uh, 57. Okay. So, so the six by around age four, I think I was uh, old enough to, you know, at least understand how to handle a piece of paper that way. Yeah. Um, because there's a little bit of skill. And um, anyway, it was, it was, I mean, I, I remember this as vividly as if it was yesterday. Right. Um, I'm just picturing all of it. It's just, uh -huh. uh, you know, with my uncle Norm, it was a real fun time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so did you continue folding throughout childhood? Not. Well, yeah. Um, for paper airplanes, that was its own little thing. Okay. Until when I was in the first grade, I saw a television show on um, public television, our local affiliate, uh, Channel 2 in Boston, and a gentleman, a Japanese gentleman, had, he had a TV series about origami. Oh. I don't know if it was nine or 13 episodes. Uh -huh. I only ever caught one. I happened to be home from school that day, sick with whatever it is. Yeah. And he showed how to take a square piece of paper and by only folding, fold a balloon. So after you're done folding it, it's flat. You puff air into right. it. And it's a famous design. Maybe many people listening have folded one of those, yeah. but I was in the first grade. And then he said, go to the library to learn more uh, about origami. And so, of course, I did. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Right. And so what did you find? And Not very much. Not very much. Uh -huh. <laughs> Back then, we're talking about the early 1960s. There were only a few books devoted to origami. And um, our local library had every one of them. Many of the origami projects were involved in books that mixed well with other paper crafts. And they seemed to all have the same small set of predictable origami projects. A flapping bird, a pinwheel, a drinking cup, a boat, a hat, a bunny rabbit, um, a, uh, a daylily, just a few things. And pretty quickly, I learned those well enough. And um, I didn't know you could invent your own origami, so I simply folded from the books. Right. And did you use origami paper? Were you able to find that? Or did you just No. I didn't know there was such a thing. Um, although, you know, uh, this Japanese gentleman had a beautiful piece of paper. This is black and white television. Yeah. But one side was white. One side was a dark color. And it 
seemed to be crisp and just very nice to fold. Um, I thought he pers perhaps prepared it himself, cutting a piece of wrapping paper up. So I would just use any paper I could find. Uh -huh. And that was fun because you could always, even though folding the same project, but with different papers and in different sizes, there was an element of um, investigation to that. Right. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. so, so what happened next in terms of... Well, the next breakthrough for me with origami was an article in Reader's Digest magazine. It's the August 1970 issue. Uh -huh. And there's an article in there uh, about an origami master who lived in Japan. His name was Akira Yoshizawa. Mm -hmm. It explained that he would study plants and animals the way a natural history buff would do. Then he'd use engineering, math and geometry and whatever uh, time it took to invent his own origami. And of mm -hmm. course, there were photos of his work. They were exquisite and so lifelike and much more complex than the projects I had folded. There were no instructions, right. but I thought, well, um, there is the answer. You can invent your own. And yeah. so I began. And the first thing I invented was a penguin. Uh -huh. And um, I had an ordinary piece of green paper, like um, you would use in a, a typewriter, and then um, cut it in square and came up with this penguin. It wasn't until a few years later that I got my hands on some official origami paper and in the package were two precious pieces of black and white paper, black on one side, uh, one on the other. Yeah. So I quickly folded my penguin. Uh -huh. And it came out mostly white with a black belly. And I said, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. So I oh, unfolded wow. it, refolded it exactly the other way around. And to my surprise, of course, you know, I had actually invented a penguin that was colored the way a penguin would with a white belly and the black on the back and the head. So that was oh, my, first, wow. um, my first Eureka origami. Yeah, yeah. that's mm -hmm. super exciting. And so how mm -hmm. old were you about? Uh, 13. Okay, okay. And that's, that was 1970. And um, so that's um, when I was inspired and actually was, you know, became aware of the fact that one could invent origami original pieces. But right. it didn't occur to me before then. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so were you were you folding a lot, or like after school, or just mm -hmm. a little bit, or all the time? Well, yeah. Once I was on to that, I was um, folding everything I could get my hands on. I was even folding food, anything flat that was flexible, <laughs> um, cloth and plastic, but mostly paper, of course. And inventing um, not very good things. Most of the early pieces weren't, um, I mean, I was pleased with them, but I don't think they'd impress many people mm -hmm. today. Um, but that's how I think one becomes fluent with any language. I think of origami as a design language. Mm -hmm. You really have to bruise your shoulders a lot and be uh, brave and put the time in. And then gradually it comes. And if you're, persistent and you have a vision, I think you can become quite a poet at it as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I love how you talk. I read um, how you talk about the language. I mean, you're telling me now, but I read something yeah. mm -hmm. about the, the language of origami. 
And so yes. you're just talking about, yeah, practice and mm-hmm. learning the ropes of folding. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Many of us in the origami world compare origami design to musical compositions mm-hmm. because the underpinnings of both of those have uh, a mathematical structure. It could be expressed, uh, you know, by ways of, of, of math and geometry. Mm-hmm. And in fact, many books have been written about music and math and, right. and not analyzing those things and origami as well. And uh, so what is helpful in that side is the ability to see structure, repeatable, usable patterns, um, and essentially find your way more clearly to the desired goal instead of bumbling around, hoping for serendipity to break through and you've, you know, discovered something that could just waste an awful lot of time. But when you're professional, you don't have a lot of time to waste. You have deadlines, as you know. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay, you're intriguing me, but my brain is like a little behind you. But I can okay. I can I can see what you're saying. Yeah. Um yeah. Um but wow, to be able to envision what you want to make and mm-hmm. get to it the quickest way. That's like yeah. That's why you're the expert, not me. And um, there's a bunch of us now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When I was first beginning, there were you could name every origami designer uh <laughs> that was of note mm-hmm. um just with a sh- even if you had a short memory span but now uh, there are countless people and right. the, the designing is at a very high level i mean a level that i wish i was at uh, with technology how, yeah, yeah and yeah. these young people coming along with great um uh great study and spirit and effort they're doing amazing things Right. So who was the first one? I know you, did you ever meet Akira Yoshizawa? Yes. Um, oh my gosh. I, um, you know, in life there's serendipity and this event was um, an ex- a great example of that. Out of the blue, I decided to put a telephone call into um, a f- friend of mine, Lillian Oppenheimer, she was the co-founder of the Origami Center of America. Right. And in the late 19, mid to late 1970s, I would visit her in New York City where she had the Origami Center of America. It was her brownstone apartment uh, in, in, um, on 71 West 11th Street. Anyway, she was in touch with everyone in the origami world. Uh-huh. And she helped people write books. So how did you, you said mm-hmm. you just called her. Yeah, I just was called she, her. Was she the was, first, like, other origami person you connected She was with? the first real professional origami person I was in touch with. Um, and you just found outside her of my own. A, a book yeah. that she wrote? or uh, She or? wrote the foreword to and, co- and collaborated with other book authors. And so um, contact information for her Origami Center of America was readily wow. available. Okay. But um, I had visited her, and there were years went by when I hadn't dealt with her. And just out of the blue in the 1990s, I, I put a phone call to Lillian, and she said, Akira Yoshizawa is coming to the United States, and there's only maybe one or two seats left in this master class. Mm-hmm. Call Michael Schall and let him know that you want to, um, you know, to be involved, and he'll put you in touch. With, and it was a string of people, finally. I got through and and uh, I was able to get a seat in this master class, oh. which was held in Austin, New York. I think it was in 1991. 
So I attended that, uh, I think it was a two or three day conference. And that's when I first met him. Uh-huh. And um, uh, it was like meeting a rock star for me. Yeah. So, uh, and then I um, was in touch with him for about a dozen years following. He passed away um, at age, I think, 93, a number of years ago. Okay. Wow. And he, did he make his own paper to fold? No. no, He just invented, he invented. Right. But you know, he had Japan's great paper makers um, for sources of paper. And I asked him about making his own paper. Mm -hmm. I I said, well, have you done that? He said he had the experience of that, but he thought that, um, the process would be brutal and damaging to his hands and his hands were his instruments after all. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't um, want to pursue that paper making after all. But of course he had access to the best papers in the world. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So um, when uh, you went to college, what did you study? I studied marine biology uh, not just biology, but I was able to specialize in marine biology. My keen focus uh, is um, a group of animals called mollusks. And I'm still involved with that study today, uh, as, as, you know, basically as an amateur. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that was my college focus. And what were you, did you have an intention with that? Mm-hmm. I wanted to... Um, work my way up to um, where I could actually be a curator um, of a mollusk collection at one of the major museums. I have a lot of good uh, friends and connections at the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard University. Uh That's not too far away from me. I'm still connected with the Boston Malacological Club. And that's a group of amateurs and professionals that specialize in the study of mollusks, and they meet at Harvard. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. And so um, did you ever do any of that kind of work? I did off and on. I helped uh-huh. uh, for a little while to curate um, a collection of mollusk shells at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. They've done renovations, so that collection is um, is put in uh, storage for now, so it's, it's, it's not accessible. But when it comes back out, I may be able to help them out with that again. Of course, it's very time-consuming work, and I've gotten so much more <laughs> busy since yeah. then that I, I may not be able to fit such a project in after all. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so sort of what happened after college in terms of origami? and? Well, um, I helped a friend look for an apartment in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And um, we went out there, and instead I found one. So... <laughs> I moved out there and just tried to make a living. Um, I worked in a bookstore. I would bake bread and baklava for um, a, um, a sandwich shop. And, um, and then I would work on my origami designs. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, the Berkshires are terrific place mm. to be inspired by nature. So I would go for lots of hikes and, um, I was also uh, dabbling in making my own paper a lot more frequently back then out there. Okay, how did um, that? How did you get into that making? Paper? Well, 
So for making paper, my first paper I made was when I was around 16 years old. I was still, you know, living at my hometown in Fitchburg, which by the way is a paper mill town, or was. Okay. And so I had access to um, people who knew how to do this um, from the mills. And many of my classmates had parents that worked in the paper mills. And um, so the first paper I made was the blender stuff yeah. i took brown paper bag soaked it in water and blended it made paper now here's an interesting thing though i was making the paper because i i was inspired by master yoshizawa's origami and i mm -hmm. saw the beautiful artist touch mm -hmm. that he was able to put into his pieces mm -hmm. and i thought it must be a property in this paper i couldn't afford to buy these beautiful handmade japanese papers and i thought well i'm going to have to make my own and so that's why I started making the paper. Uh -huh. And although my first efforts probably weren't that great, I was thrilled. Yeah. And I was able to make some lovely things. And also I saw how the paper handled differently than um, gift wrap and notebook papers and, and typewriter paper. Mm -hmm. Right. So I have two questions. So the first mm -hmm. one, um, the mill town, you said yeah. people knew how to make paper. So did, mm -hmm. did you actually learn in school or did somebody, did you go to the mill and then downscale? Like how mm -hmm. did you right. come up with the blender? Well, one of my classmates, um, his father worked in one of the paper mills and that father helped that classmate make a little science fair project in our elementary school. We had, you know, we all did science fairs. His yeah. paper his science fair project was about how paper is made. Okay. His booth was set up beautifully in all the different stages, the raw materials to the pulp and the refining and the bleaching and the sheet forming and everything. And so just there in one display, I saw it. And we did have tours of the mills, including the lab where there was a lab beater. Mm -hmm. It was probably, um, uh, a, a valley beater and they showed how they would form sheets to put through various tests to test the, mm. the raw materials and um, adjust their machines accordingly to the product so a lot of this was right there in front of my eyes and uh, I'm a pretty confident person I say well uh, there it is I just I'm just gonna go do that <laughs> so, right. but I was making my pulp by them by taking a baseball bat and beating <laughs> my raw materials against a, um, a granite slab. Oh, wow. And um, so when Master Yoshizawa told me about, you know, why he didn't want to make paper, I understood what he meant about damaging the hands. It's pretty jarring to your bones to be bashing yeah. pulp um, <laughs> that, that way. So um, I don't do that anymore. I have a valley beater of my own. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And you must have been persistent because... Mm -hmm. um, my first paper was also brown paper bag. And yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. And that's, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But but it's a little it's a little thick for origami, I would think. Yeah, but although yeah. thick paper can and is often used in origami, it's the mm -hmm. thin stuff that, of course, is prized for complex work. The more right. complex a piece, the larger the area of the square paper or whatever shape it must be, and relatively thin. Mm -hmm. The first paper that was thin enough for me to make a complex piece was a green colored tissue paper that I made from which I folded my praying mantis, oh. which is a fairly complex piece yeah. and no cuts. And it has all the legs and mouth parts right. and everything. Um, but that, 
that was a bit of a revolution for me, making paper so thin and strong to be able to make that. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's go back to that, to the Berkshires. You were um, perfecting mm -hmm. your paper making. Yeah. And by back then I was also ordering buckets of pulp, um, probably from uh, Twin Rocker. Mm -hmm. And um, later on, when I moved back east, I became acquainted with the Koretskis okay. and with Lee McDonald. And so I was ordering uh, buckets of pulp um, to my specifications uh, from those folks until we did get a valley beater around the, isn't it funny to say it this way, the turn of the century? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> around two, the year 2000, 2001, yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> finally got our own valley beater. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, take me on a quick journey from the Berkshires to mm -hmm. uh, when you got whatever the next big right. thing was. Well, one must make a living, and yeah. I certainly wasn't um, ready to be a full-time professional artist. My brother David bought a pizza parlor, and so um, he called me from, you know, uh, he was living in the East Coast, you know, Massachusetts, he said, uh, come on out and work for me. So I did. Okay. And by that means, I ended up in the food service industry for a while, working in restaurants, working, selling food to restaurants. And that was probably about a seven-year period. And I was younger then, and I could put up with seven-day work weeks that often had 14-hour days. Yeah. And it was exciting. But I developed a talent I hadn't realized I had. I was still inventing origami. It didn't matter if I was washing dishes, slicing onions, mm -hmm. doing inventory, um, or running the line. I could run another part of my brain uh, uh, inventing things. Uh -huh. And then when I had the free time, I would just fold them up. Right. Came up with quite a big repertoire in those seven years, just all doing it in my head. Wow. And then I was ready. <laughs> yeah, so then you would ready. you would be washing dishes and going, okay, this is the first fold, this is the yep. second fold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've done yeah. things like that. Like I was yeah. in the marching band. Oh, wonderful. And I would like do the sequence of my feet steps in my head. Yeah. Right. So right. Of, uh, it's kind of backwards to what you're saying. You were going forward. I was kind of repeating <laughs> what I'd done. But I guess in a way it's similar. Anyways. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay, so you were ready. What were you ready for? What happened? Well, um, again, you know, one has to pay the bills. Yeah. And um, I really wanted to have more time for myself so I could transition. But um, that didn't seem possible with the treadmill of the work in the food service business. Mm -hmm. So this is when I met Richard Alexander and I started uh, working for his environmental compliance consulting company. Okay. Um, so I had a, you know, biology and chemistry background and um, I was also good at uh, graphic arts and, and uh, so I, and communicating. So um, I did get um, employment from Richard for several years in that capacity. Okay. And um, all the while, he would see me making these origami things. And it came to a point where he said, you know, um, it's like a light under a bushel basket. He said, we've got a, 
take the bushel basket away. He says, you really, you should be doing this, this, mm. this art. Mm-hmm. So uh, during the year 1993 or four, I did, I put a, an exhibit together at the Yamawaki Art and Cultural Center in Newton. And uh, it was two floors of a building we filled with origami art. My work plus work we borrowed from Master Yoshizawa. The show was a terrific success. Uh And so from that exhibit on, I became a full-time origami artist. And we made plans for starting this origami studio and doing our publications and setting up the whole the whole business. It was a real exciting time. Wow. So you actually had a business plan, it sounds like? It was in the back of my mind, and Richard mm-hmm. certainly had a vision for it, although, mm-hmm. you know, you have to still pay the bills. So we had one foot in the environmental consulting business side and another foot in the art um, and papermaking side. But as soon as we were able to plant both feet on that other side that ground uh that was 1996 and that's when we officially um founded the origami do studio in haverhill massachusetts okay so mm-hmm. so describe the name origami do what mm-hmm. that means yep well origami is a japanese word oru means to fold kami means paper you put it together it's origami fold paper mm-hmm. do when you add that it means the art the way the path so if you heard of judo, kendo, chado, shodo, all these different things, um, I, my father was a judo master, and I, fe- I felt like the kind of origami I was aiming to do was more along that level of lifelong pursuit. Mm-hmm. So I coined the word origami dough just to distinguish it from just or- ordinary origami. Many years later, Akira Yoshizawa spoke with me about that. He said, you know, mm-hmm. there are five dough. And in Japan, it's a very serious thing. You don't change that. Uh-huh. He said as a Japanese man, he himself could not nominate a word like origami dough in the level of the dough. He said, but you as a gaijin can come in <laughs> and get away with it. Uh-huh. So, so he, was, he was pleased with that. Um, and I didn't realize um, that's that other side of the word, but uh, right. that's where the word comes from, the way of folding paper. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. you do quite a few things at Origami Do Studio. Mm-hmm. And um, let's, yeah. uh, you do teaching, you have mm-hmm. a gallery, you, um, you make paper, so let's start with the paper making. Was that mm-hmm. an integral? Was that at the beginning? Yes. Um, in fact, um, the studio that we founded and opened originally in 1996, which ran for about 12 years, was in downtown Haverhill. Okay. And it was about 2,500 square feet mm-hmm. of space. The front area was the gallery and teaching area, also sales of supplies like books and origami paper. And then we had an office. And then in the way back, there was a big paper-making room. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, we had the paper-making uh, right from the beginning. Uh, 
We don't have that studio anymore. We had moved to Hawaii for a little while. We had about another 2,500 square foot studio space in Waikiki. But when we came back to the United States, we downsized. So we're working out of our studio home. Mm -hmm. When we want to make paper now, it's done in the garage. And our little teaching studio has a modest exhibit gallery. Okay. And it's where we um, fabricate our commissions and where we uh, teach beginner to master level private and small group lessons. But that downtown studio was very special and people came from all over the world yeah. to um, work there, to um, visit. And also uh, it kind of created a art space downtown which right. was a nice focus for the local community and families. Hey listeners, let's take a little break here and I want to tell you about the Red Cliff Paper Retreat, an annual retreat held at Helen Hebert's studio in the heart of the Rocky Mountains of Colorado every September. Enjoy three or five peaceful creative days in the tiny hamlet of Red Cliff, surrounded by mountains, the river, and aspen trees as they begin to change their glorious fall colors. Experiment with several techniques as you create a variety of paper objects that will intrigue your eyes and illuminate your spirit. All levels of art experience are invited. The 2020 retreat takes place August 29th through September 2nd, and the theme is woven paper, books, vessels, lighting. Come explore a variety of papers that can be made by hand, folded, stitched, and woven to create books, wall hangings, sculpture, lighting, and more. Explore these ideas as you create unique paper objects with a dozen like-minded creatives. Find out more at helenhebertstudio.com slash retreat. Now back to the episode. Give me an overview of the types of papers mm -hmm. that you create for origami. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that each kind of paper that I make is driven by the project. So mm -hmm. if it's a frog, mm -hmm. I have developed a very specific paper, not only in its relative thickness and foldability, but this iridescent green um, uh, sparkle sheen to it so it looks like a wet frog um, and I call it frog paper and so I formulate that for that a grackle demands another paper a mountain lion mask goes on and on and on a praying mantis each paper that we have made has been uh, driven by the demand of the of the of the end project now we, as you know, as a paper maker, you d one doesn't make a sheet of paper. <laughs> it's like you don't make a cookie, right? You make a batch. And yeah. so from the batch of paper, I will, uh, w when I make the batch of paper, I will make a cline of relative thicknesses and also color tones. So I may have a range, I may not know exactly which particular relative thickness is going to be best. Mm -hmm. And I may not know exactly which hue, tone, or whatever, and the color that I exactly want. So I, that batch has a cline of those things. I From haven't that, heard that word, a cline. Oh, yeah. 
it's sort of a scale or a range. Okay, yeah. And so, um, so it's like bracketing with images mm -hmm. on a camera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we could call it that. Right. From the batch, it could be 80 or 100 sheets. I'll select the dozen or fewer that turn out to be best for the project. And then the leftover papers we sell. Okay, we so that's how you sort of came to sell your paper. Oh, right, so sense. we're not production paper makers. Uh -huh. We don't keep an inventory of reliable right. kinds of paper. When it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. And so over the years, because we do make a lot of paper, we've had a lot of paper to sell. Now, Richard Alexander... Uh, the co-founder of the Oregon Mido Studio, and he's actually the president of our company, has become our paper maker for the last oh. dozen years. Okay. He's taken over. Uh -huh. He's a chemist, and he knows an awful lot about the, the things that I need, and he's brilliant at it. I think he's better than I uh -huh. am uh -huh. at paper making. So right. he's been um, our master paper maker for the last dozen years. Right. So yeah. tell me about uh, like the foldability, and I mm -hmm. wanna hear a little bit about the pulps you use. So maybe mm -hmm. you could tell me a particular project that was challenging mm -hmm. to get the right combination. Right. Well, you know, one learns from others, and yeah. what was uh, a great, um, pleasure for me was to learn from people like John Kohler. That's a long time ago in the 70s um, <laughs> at the University of Connecticut, but also um, mostly from um, the Koretskis. Mm -hmm. And I learned about overbeating pulp. Mm -hmm. I learned about um, different, certain kinds of blends. And so, and also their pigment system, uh, I really liked the best. So um, I, initially started with a blend of 80% abaca, 20% cotton. It was usually like a second cut linter. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I learned that blend from the Koretskis, beating for about 45 minutes. And it colored well. And it had a nice blend of foldability, not too crisp, but had a good tensile strength. And you beat them together? Uh, yeah, I would beat them together, uh -huh. and then I later learned to beat them separately because as I started changing the ratios, sometimes 50-50, mm -hmm. sometimes different types of cottons, I would maybe overbeat the abaca, and then I would uh, beat the, the cotton only about an hour, and it right. kind of fills in the holes that abaca right. often makes. And then I would do 100% abaca, which would be beaten for three hours, and it would become real translucent, as you probably know about that, and real yeah. crisp and strong. Mm -hmm. We use flax and hemp and gampi and mitsumata, mm -hmm. as well as um, linen and cotton rag. And, um, oh, just some odd things every now and then that may come our way. Hemp is terrific mm. when you can get it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Wow. But I would say that the, the fold, if, if, if it's a mammal as a subject, mm -hmm. I want the paper to be able to make soft shapes and to have a slightly fuzzy look. If it's uh -huh. an insect, I want crisp folds. Uh -huh. I want a hard, um, like a, a, a beetle's uh, skeleton mm -hmm. kind of a sheen to it. Right. If it's an amphibian, 
I want the soft look, but I want the wet, you know, I want it to look uh, like it just came out of the water. Right. So all of these little factors are part of the paper making uh, plan. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I know you do wet folding. Mm-hmm. Describe that. I, I, I figured out how to do that by accident and later found out that that's what Yoshizawa was doing all along. <laughs> you remember I told you about the paper I made from the blender and the brown wrapping paper? I mean, uh-huh. the brown paper bags? Yeah. Well, I was, um, this is how I, how I discovered wet folding. I was impatient and um, I didn't know about a Santa Ana drying system. This is back in the 60s, you know. So um, I was drying my paper between blotters and changing the blotters every day yeah. the way you people used to use an herbarium press to dry leaves and flowers and everything uh-huh. and my blotters were um newspapers well changing out the blotters every day was annoying but I finally got to the point where ah, it feels kind of dry enough but there was still moisture in there i just started folding the paper right away and the shaping uh. Yeah. Was I said, that's it. But I thought I was cheating. Uh-huh. So then I started wetting my paper. Years later, when I met Lillian Oppenheimer and showed her my work, as soon as I took it out of the box to show her, the first thing she said to me was, she said, you wet your paper. And my face turned beet uh-huh. red. I feel the heat just blasting out of my face. I was right. so embarrassed at being caught. Uh-huh. You said, Yoshizawa wets his paper. I said, oh. So well, what one does is put a little bit of water, you spray it lightly on both sides, brush the water off, and the paper should neither look nor feel wet. Uh-huh. But it'll become supple. It'll feel okay. supple, and it'll feel cool to the touch. Uh-huh. Now, when you fold that paper, the fibers bend like steamed wood. They don't mm-hmm. crack and break. Right. And when the paper dries, whatever size was in there hardens back up, like mm-hmm. wet spaghetti getting dried. Right. So it retains its integrity. The fibers are not broken along these crease lines. And then it hardens up. It becomes quite a resilient little thing. And um, that produces the most long-lasting work. And mm-hmm. so I always wet fold for that reason, at least. Mm-hmm. And it's also part of the wet folding that you can get more curvature to the paper. Yeah, yeah. that's that's true because uh, you can put in what I like to call the artist touch. Uh-huh. Um, little sweeping curves, little subtle gestures, even just a little dimple or dent in the right place can imply an eye or some other part of a muscle and brings it to life. Right. And there are many styles in origami. Although most people are familiar with the crane and a few flat, straight-folded things, um, there's a great range from that flat geometric to the most lively, wild, and almost um, just completely lyrical pieces that one wouldn't imagine actually came from origami technique. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So um, we still have a lot to cover, and I don't want to talk forever so let's let's switch over to publishing how did you get into writing 
books because you how many have you published 70 oh, or something yeah right yeah. if you count the the kits with the videos and uh probably at least 70 titles by now mm -hmm. the first book i ever wrote was self-published and it was a single model how to fold my f-14 tomcat fighter jet Oh. And I thought I was going to make a lot of money. I, I paid for a printer to put them out. I advertised in the back of Popular Science magazine. Oh. That was expensive. And waited yeah. for the checks to roll in. It was oh. a big bust. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great model. And I later found out that quite a few people shared it around just by buying one copy and photocopying and sending it to others. Oh. How so, many did you print? Oh, uh, several thousand. Yeah. Um, after all, um, I ended up donating most of them to the um, to Origami USA for them to sell. Uh -huh. Origami USA, by the way, is our national not-for-profit right. organization devoted to origami. And they're a great resource for anyone interested in learning more about origami. That's a great place to start. Yeah, absolutely. And just give a little, when did that start? The uh, Origami USA came from Lillian Oppenheimer's um, Origami Center of America, which was founded in 1958. Okay. And then um, as she was uh, wanting to, you know, she was retiring from that. Um, she had some people take over. They were wonderful organizers. It became the Friends of the Origami Center of America for many years. And then it uh, changed its name to Origami USA. Okay, and yeah, it's a fantastic website with all kinds yeah. of resources. Yeah, exactly. Worldwide connections. It's a terrific thing. Yeah. Right. Now, to continue the publishing, mm -hmm. um, I don't know how this happened, but Rockport Publishing found out about me, and I, got, I received a phone call. Remember phone calls? <laughs> this is before yeah. the internet. <laughs> Offering for me uh, to have a job writing a book. Uh-huh. And this um, became that paper sculpting book, um, in which I was delighted to feature your work. Yeah. That's how we both became first really acquainted. That's right. That's right. And um, because that was the first real big book project I had ever worked on, um, I learned a lot. Um, back then we had to take photographs at a professional studio on 70 millimeter color film mm -hmm. and um, everything was submitted um, as a big package. You had to send your typed text and you had to, I mean, all this stuff, big box goes to the publisher. Yeah. yeah. And it takes a lot longer and it uh, took a lot longer then. They loved the work I did and then they offered me a, a craft book series. Okay. So after writing those four books, I said, you know what? I want to write a book. Uh -huh. I want to write a book about origami. And they didn't want to, but I said, well, um, let's, let's go for this. You want me to write some more books for you? You got to let me write my book. So I did that book with them and then a few others. And then other publishers came calling. Oh. Rosen Publishing and then Tuttle. Okay. We've been mostly publishing um, books through Tuttle these last Gosh, is it 10 years now? Wow. Yeah, and they've been wonderful. We really enjoy the collaboration with Tuttle. Mm -hmm. Right. And these are books mostly of your origami designs? Right. Mm -hmm. um, most of the books uh, represent my original and Richard's original origami designs and a few traditional projects. There are only about 24, maybe a dozen to 15, 24, uh, quote, traditional 
um, projects. Okay. So we do invite other origami artists to contribute work from time to time. If there's mm -hmm. a piece we really like, or we would, we want to give some exposure to a designer that um, may not have a venue at that time. And uh, it's worked out really well. Yeah. And I know you have, um, you've, you've done DVDs and yeah. videos and some of your books have origami paper that come with them. Right. I, um, I think we were, we're involved the origami Dove studio, Richard and I are involved in several, uh, firsts, uh, we're probably the first origami artists to make all our own paper for yes. our projects. Mm -hmm. I don't know that anyone in the origami, in the history of origami can, has preceded us in that. And then Richard was doing video documentary for his training, uh, materials uh -huh. for our work in the environmental and the um, work safety programs. Mm -hmm. So he had the equipment and the knowledge. He would uh -huh. videotape me. And so we were among the first to have complete video lessons for origami back then with VHS cassettes. Right. <laughs> and then in 2008, we were, uh, if not the first, among the first, to offer video DVDs with our books. Okay. Tuttle uh, agreed it was a good idea. And in 2008, our first um, book kit with paper and video DVD with complete video lessons uh, came out. And since then, all of our books that we've published with Tuttle have had at least the video DVD to go along with the book. Many of the projects, many of the publications were also kitted with paper. Right. And, and um, what, what kind of feedback have you gotten from the DVDs? I'm sure it's good uh, because uh, I struggle myself trying mm. to follow origami instructions that are just yeah. on the printed page sometimes. So. Right. Well, before YouTube really got up and running and having, you could learn anything by video on YouTube, um, the, our DVDs and our VHS cassettes were really uh, a boon to anyone beginning in origami we would get letters of praise where we used to get hate mail because <laughs> you publish diagrams and right. we would have, we have people writing in saying, I'm an engineer and I can't even follow <laughs> the simplest thing, you know, from this sort of thing. Right. And yet, you know, that same project that they were complaining about, I had kids in the fifth, in a fifth grade classroom folding from the diagrams. Right. So just because you have a degree in engineering doesn't mean you can read origami diagrams. Right. It's like sheet music. I tell people, you may know how a certain so uh, song goes. You can run it through your head, da-da-da-da-da. But now put the sheet music in front of you, and if you have no training, it's going to be a little bit of a plunk-plunk-plunk on the keyboard, and it won't be fun, it won't be easy, and you'll think that um, they must have made a mistake somewhere in this printing business. Right. But that's how a lot of people experience um, learning origami from diagrams. The videos are much easier for the beginner to use. Mm -hmm. Right. And have you gone to any sort of digital video system for teaching? Like, do you have any YouTube mm. videos? or We do. We, ha we don't have many because, yeah. um, well, we have two things. Number one, um, we, we support our publishers. They... Right. Um, you know, they have hired us to produce the materials that they sell. Mm -hmm. 
And so if we then went around and put those same designs for free on a YouTube channel, well, that's just not a, a good idea. Right. Um, the other thing, too, is we're really busy. And um, when we're writing books and doing videos for these productions, that really ties up that kind of production time. So, But we do have some YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. It's called Origami Studio on YouTube. And that's where you'll find some fresh designs and a lot of my origami butterflies, which people are, are keen to fold these uh, days. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you do commissions. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of commissions do you do? And maybe you could describe one. Well, most recently we've been collaborating with Kevin Box Studios out in Cerritos, New Mexico. And uh, Kevin and Jennifer Box and their team are sculptors and they create monumental metal sculptures in bronze aluminum and stainless steel yeah i was out yeah. there i went there this oh summer. yeah yeah that's kind of how we reconnected they're they're terrific people and uh robert lang who's one of our great origami masters in the united states mm-hmm. and beth johnson is another one who's recently been uh commissioning uh, has had works commissioned by the boxes so they would tell us what we want, and we would spend some time designing and sending comps out to them. And that's been our most recent collaborations. And so they're fabricated in yeah. as yeah, giant we'll, sculptures. Yeah, uh, we'll send them the original origami, and Kevin, well, he'll tell you more about that, yeah, how he yeah. transforms it, but it's astonishing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we send out a paper model, right. and he, like my squirrel, I have a bronze one here. I know your listeners can't see it, yeah. but you've seen the, right? So this is yeah. the life-size one, and he's got one out on his on his uh, exhibit trail that's probably about, I don't know, eight feet tall. <laughs> yeah, we'll put a photo of it on the, oh, in great. the show notes for the podcast. That's yeah. a great idea. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. yeah. But other commissions, they vary. People may want, um, well, the first anniversary is a paper anniversary. Right. Yeah. And a pair of handmade paper origami butterflies designed special for the couple and nicely framed is a typical commission. Uh-huh. Um, museums hire us to travel to their, um, their zone, their area, and we'll study the plants and animals there and we'll create an exhibit representing usually threatened and endangered plants and animals. Uh, mm-hmm. from their area. We did that for the Morikami Museum and Japanese Gardens down in Delray Beach for Everglades animals. And then out at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum in Tucson, Arizona. Um, those are great commissions. They're about two years to complete a project like that and including all the paper that we have to make. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so then do they, um, they, they keep the pieces and... Yes. They use them in other ways, I'm guessing. They, they yeah. keep them in their collection. They do. And, uh, well, yes and no. Um, okay. The Tucson exhibit, the pieces were sold. Okay. Uh, they had, you know, it was a gallery and right. it was an exhibit and um, the pieces were actually sold. The, the Florida one, um, they, they have the collection, the complete collection. So each... each commission it depends on what they wish to do sometimes they don't want to keep the pieces uh they just pay us for the for the effort and uh we keep the pieces so it all depends on what they what they prefer Mm -hmm. right 
Cool. I didn't know. So you actually get paid to uh, create a show. That's cool because yeah. some people that show art just have to send the art and don't get any compensation. Right. Um, that's the thing too is certainly we have exhibited in places where we don't get paid. Mm -hmm. We loan pieces for the show. Right. Um, and we're very particular about that. Not everyone who, who curates an exhibit knows how to carefully handle mm -hmm. origami pieces and return them. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then we can be stretched pretty thin. We have a nice collection of our work and the work of others, but we can't send everything out for a year and then still have requests coming in when we have nothing. So um, fortunately, there are other people around the country and around the world to supply beautiful pieces for uh, such exhibits. And yeah, usually there's no compensation except the shipping costs. Right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. But there's the exposure. Uh, right, absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep, it could um, either be sitting in your house in a box or it could be inspiring <laughs> someone in a gallery in some wonderful place in the world. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, so you do that. That's a good segue into your teaching. Yeah. So, um, yeah, tell me about all the multiple ways that you mm. spread, spread the good news of origami. Well, here's another music analogy. Like a music teacher, uh -huh. uh, those who really wish to become an artist and a professional in a particular art, they want to find um, a nearby professional uh, from whom you know, they can study uh, uh -huh. these ways. And then that teacher is going to really work at them and say, look, this is where you're deficient. This is what I want you to accomplish by then and blah, 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 blah. So I, I do that. But then there are the dabblers, the hobbyists, the people who are just curious and want to have a fun one-time origami lesson experience. So we teach beginner to master level, and um, we teach at our studio, but we also teach in schools. And in schools, we use origami to teach math and geometry. Mm -hmm. I would say uh, easily a fifth of the work that I do in a year is the in-school origami math enrichment programs and we travel all over the place mostly in the greater boston area but all over the country to do this yeah and the kids love it they say oh we're not doing math today right. but then we get them folding and then they are, we're really putting them through some math focused on whatever where wherever they are in their curriculum at the year and the teachers love it the students love it um and i enjoy it i love to get out there and teach and so how did you develop that it sounds like it's a mm. curriculum almost. I used to, uh, you know, I, I struggled with math. And, uh -huh. um, and so I found that if I could build something with my hands, I could understand what the math was really doing. Mm -hmm. And I would remember it better. I'd invest more of my, my thinking towards it. And I would do, I would invent my own origami homework for my geometry lessons in high school. Oh. And later on when schools were hiring, hiring me to do, origami in the classroom they, they said oh we'd love to have you come in and teach origami to our kids uh they wanted it as an art element but i'd okay. throw in a little math right and the teachers i guess started seeing this potential and hiring me to come back and do the math the word spread and now we have quite a few schools that have had me back i would say even for 20 years in a row right uh, which is wow. really gratifying mm -hmm. That sure is, yeah. yeah. And I read something else. Uh, you use the word storygami. 
Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. So tell me about a piece. Maybe you can walk me through folding a piece with a story. Oh, sure. <laughs> Have you, uh, I'll, I'll just describe it yeah. to you. Yeah. Yep. Well, storigami uh, is something I learned from Lillian Oppenheimer and Shari Lewis. And Shari Lewis is the famous puppeteer with lamb chop. And um, she and Lillian wrote books together about origami. And one of them was storigami. What you essentially do is... Um, on every new shape that's created in the folding process of an origami project, you use your imagination and it becomes uh, a visual element of the story. If you take a square sheet of paper and fold it in half to make a triangle, the triangle can symbolize a mountain. Mm -hmm. And the square corner would be at the top. That would be the top of the mountain. Right. The two smaller corners flanking at the bottom could be mountain climbers. I like to name them lefty and righty. So here's a storigami about making a little sailboat. And this is one of my storigamis. So um, this, this story takes place at this mountain. So you fold the bottom corner to the top. There's the mountain. Uh -huh. And on this day, our two good friends, lefty and righty, climb to the top of the mountain. So one at a time, lefty and righty climb. Up they go. Upon reaching the top of the mountain, they realized how hungry they were. And one of them took out this sandwich. Now, I don't know if you can visualize this. But after lefty and right here at the top, yep. that new smaller square has a line down the middle diagonally. It looks like a sandwich cut in half. Yep. And I say, they didn't even get a single bite because the next thing that happened, the mountain began to shake. So we shake the little paper. Our friends skied quickly to the bottom to safety. So you bring them back down. Okay. The next thing that happened, the top of the mountain split open. And so you take the first layer of the top corner, fold it to the bottom, and it's basically a mudslide okay and then they go back up to the top of the mountain to see what it looked like uh, they go to the other side you turn the paper over to the other side they go down to white diamond lake and then you fold the bottom corner it's a little sailboat with two little sails now without seeing the paper folding it you know it's hard to visualize most of the rest of it but when you're folding it in front of the students and they are following along, suspending disbelief and enjoying it all the way, they suddenly end up with this wonderful little sailboat that has two sails. It stands up, and if you blow on it, it'll go across the table. Oh. Now, one of the charming things to do next is to say, here's a new piece of paper, make another one. Uh -huh. And the storigami helps them remember. Right. Yes. So it's a fun way to teach, and it's also a creative process in itself, coming up with new stories for any origami one knows well enough to teach to someone. Right. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. And that, mm -hmm. I think that's a good place to mm -hmm. uh, wind down and also to, mm -hmm. to mention that you're contributing a sailboat envelope to my next book. Oh, that's right. So that's the sailboat. That Coincidence, yes. yeah. Right. That's, the thing. that's what it looks like when it's done. Right. Sailboat. Which, by the way, that sailboat is the logo, was the logo for the Origami Center of America that Lillian Oppenheimer co-founded. Oh, okay. And oh, so, um, and it's a traditional model, but she adopted that for her logo. And so I was asked to invent that sailboat envelope for one of the major anniversaries of Lillian Oppenheimer's birthday and the Origami Center of America. So I'm pleased uh, that that's going to be in your book. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So just mm-hmm. let's just remind listeners where they can find you online again, and they can find mm-hmm. about all of your books and everything yes. you do at your website, which is? Right. Origamido.com. That's O-R-I-G-A-M-I-D-O.com. Origamido.com. Mm-hmm. Well, wonderful. It's been great talking to you, Michael. Thank you so much. And you much. too, Helen. Thank you so much for having me on your blog. And thanks uh, for having me uh, con- contribute to your upcoming book. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Bye now. Bye-bye. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert's studio. You can sign up at helenhebertstudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit helenhebertstudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can find out more about them, subscribe to the series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon. Jesus.